Chapter 3 Such was Ivan Ilyich's life for seventeen years after his marriage. He had been by now a long while prosecutor, and had refused several appointments offered him, looking out for a more desirable post, when there occurred an unexpected incident which utterly destroyed his peace of mind. Ivan Ilyich had been expected to be appointed presiding judge in the university town, but a certain gop somehow stole a march on him and secured the appointment. Ivan Ilyich took offense, began upbraiding him, and quarreled with him and with his own superiors. A coolness was felt towards him, and on the next appointment that was made, he was again passed over. This was in the year 1880. That year was the most painful one in Ivan Ilyich's life. During that year, it became evident on one hand that his pay was insufficient for his expenses, on the other hand that he had been forgotten by everyone, and that when uh, what seemed to him the most monstrous, the cruelest injustice, appeared to other people as a quite commonplace fact. Even his father felt no obligation to assist him. He felt that everyone had deserted him, and that everyone regarded his position with an income of 3,500 rubles as a quite normal and even fortunate one. He alone, with a sense of the injustice done him, and the everlasting nagging of his wife and the debts he had begun to accumulate, living beyond his means, knew that his position was far from being normal. The summer of that year, to cut down his expenses, he took a holiday and went with his wife to spend the summer in the country at her brother's. In the country, with no official duties to occupy him, Ivan Ilyich was for the first time a prey not to simple boredom, but to intolerable depression. And he made up his mind that things could not go on like that, and that it was absolutely necessary to take some decisive steps. After a sleepless night spent by Ivan Ilyich walking up and down the terrace, he determined to go to Petersburg to take active steps and to get transferred to some other department, so as to revenge himself on them, the people, that is, who had not known how to appreciate him. Next day, in spite of all the efforts of his wife and his mother-in-law to dissuade him, he set off to Petersburg. He went with a single object before him to obtain a post with an income of 5,000. He was ready now to be satisfied with a post in any department, of any tendency, with any kind of work. He must only have a post, a post with 5,000, in the executive department, the banks, the railways, the Empress Maria's institutions, even in the customs duties. That was essential, was five thousand. What was essential was 5,000, and essential it was, too, to get out of the department in which they had failed to appreciate his value. And, behold, this quest of Ivan Ilyich's was crowned with wonderful, unexpected success. At Kursk, there got into the same first-class carriage F.S. Ilyin, an acquaintance, who told him of a telegram just received by the governor of Kursk, announcing a change about to take place in the ministry. Pyotr Ivanovich was to be superseded by Ivan Semyonovich. The proposed change, apart from its significance for Russia, had special significance for Ivan Ilyich from the fact that by bringing to the front a 
new person, Pyotr Petrovich, and obviously, therefore, his friend, Zahar Ivanovich, it was in the highest degree propitious to Ivan Ilyich's own plans. Zahar Ivanovich was a friend and schoolfellow of Ivan Ilyich's. At Moscow, the news was confirmed. On arriving at Petersburg, Ivan Ilyich looked up Zahar Ivanovich and received a, pos a positive promise of an appointment in his former department, that of justice. A week later, he telegraphed to his wife, Zahar Miller's place, at first report I receive appointment. Thanks to these changes, Ivan Ilyich unexpectedly obtained, in the same department as before, an appointment which placed him two stages higher than his former colleagues, and gave him an income of 5000 together with the official allowance of 3500 for traveling expenses. All his ill humor with his former enemies and the whole department was forgotten, and Ivan Ilyich was completely happy. Ivan Ilyich went back to the country more light-hearted and good-tempered than he had been for a very long while. Praskovia Fedorovna was in better spirits, too, and peace was patched up between them. Ivan Ilyich described what respect everyone had shown him in Pe Petersburg, how all uh, those who had been his enemies had been put to shame and were cringing now before him, how envious they were of his appointment, and still more of the high favor in which he stood at Petersburg. Praskovia Fedorovna listened to this, and pretended to believe it, and did not contradict him in anything, but confined herself to making plans for her new arrangements in the town to which they would be moving. And Ivan Ilyich saw with delight that these plans were his, were his plans, that they were agreed, and that his life after this disturbing hitch in its progress was about to regain its true, normal character of light-hearted agreeableness and propriety. Ivan Ilyich had come back to the country for a short stay only. He had to enter upon the duties of his new office on the 10th of September, and besides, he needed some time to settle in a new place, to move all his belongings from the other province, to purchase and order many things in, it, in addition, in short, to arrange things as settled in his own mind and almost exactly as settled in the heart, too, of Praskovia Fedorovna. And now, when everything was so successfully arranged, and when he and his wife were agreed in their aim, and were, besides, so little together, they got on with one another as they had not got on together since the early years of their married life. Ivan Ilyich had thought of taking his uh, family away with him at once, but his sister and his brother-in-law, who had suddenly become extremely cordial and intimate with him and his family, were so pressing in urging them to stay that he set off alone. Ivan Ilyich started off, and the light-hearted temper pro produced by his success and his good understanding with his wife, one thing backing up another, did not desert him all the time. He found a charming set of apartments, the very thing both husband and wife had dreamed of. Spacious, lofty reception rooms in the old style, a comfortable, dignified-looking study for him, rooms for his wife and daughter, a schoolroom for his son, everything as though planned on purpose for them. Ivan Ilyich himself looked after the furnishing of them, chose the wallpapers, bought furniture, by preference antique furniture, which had a, a peculiar calm I should look that up. 
style to his mind, and it all grew up and grew up, and really attained the ideal he had set before himself. When he had half finished arranging the house, his uh, arrangement surpassed his own expectations. He saw the calm Ilfo character, elegant and free from vulgarity, that the whole would have when it was all ready. As he fell asleep, he pictured to himself the reception room as it would be. Looking at the drawing room, not yet finished, he could see the hearth, the screen, the etage, and the little chairs dotted here and there, the plates and dishes on the wall, and the bronzes as they would be when they were all put in their places. He was delighted with the thought of how he would impress Prescovia and Lizanka, who had taste too in this line. They would never expect anything like it. He was particularly successful in coming across and buying cheap old pieces of furniture, which gave a peculiarly aristocratic air to the whole. In his letters, he purposefully disparaged anything, everything so as to surprise them. All this so absorbed him that the duties of his new office, though he was so fond of his official work, interested him, interested him less than he had expected. During sittings of the court, he had moments of inattention. He pondered the question which sort of cornices to have on the window blinds, straight or fluted. He was so interested in this business that he often set to work with his own hands, moved a piece of furniture, or hung up curtains himself. One day he went up a ladder to show a workman, who did not understand how he wanted some hanging, hanging straight, made a false step, and slipped. But, like a strong and nimble person, he clung on, and only knocked his side against the corner of a frame. The bruised place ached, but it was soon passed off. Ivan Ilyich felt all this time particularly good-humored and well. He wrote, I feel fifteen years younger. He thought his house furnishings would be finished in September, but it dragged on to the middle of October. But then the effect was charming. Not he only not he only said so, but everyone who saw it told him so too. In reality, it was all just what it com is commonly seen in the houses of people who are not exactly wealthy but want to look like wealthy people, and so succeed only in being like one another. Hangings, dark wood, flowers, rugs and bronzes, everything dark and highly polished, everything that all people of a certain class have so as to be like all people of a certain class. And in his case, it was all so like that it made no impression at all, but it all seemed to him somehow special. When he met his family at the railway station and brought them to his newly furnished rooms, all lighted up in readiness, and a footman in a white tie opened the door into an entry decorated with flowers, and then they walked into the drawing room and the study, Uttering cries of delight, he was very happy, conducting them everywhere, eagerly drinking in their praises, and beaming with satisfaction. The same evening, while they talked about various things at tea, Praskovia Fedorovna inquired about his fall, and he laughed and showed them how he had gone flying, and now and how he had frightened the upholsterer. "'It's as well I'm something of an athlete. Another man might have been killed, and I got nothing worse than a blow here, when it's not." Uh, when it's touch it, touched, it hurts, but it's going off already. Nothing but a bruise. And they began to live in their new abode, which, 
As is always the case, when they had got it thoroughly settled in, they found to be short of just one room, and with their new income, which, as always, was only a little, some five hundred roubles, too, too little, and everything went very well. Things went particularly well at first, before everything was quite finally arranged, and there was still something to do to the place, something to buy, something to order, something to move, something to make fit. Though there were indeed several disputes between husband and wife, both were so well satisfied, and there was so much to do, that it all went off without serious quarrels. When there was some, nothing left to arrange, it became a little dull, and something seemed to be lacking. But th by then they were making acquaintances and forming habits, and life was filled up again. Ivan Ilyich, after spending the morning in the court, returned home to dinner, and at first he was generally in a good humor, although this was apt to be upset a little, and precisely on account of the new abode. Every spot on the tablecloth, on the hangings, the string of a window blind broken, irritated him. He had devoted so much trouble to the arrangement of the rooms, that any disturbance of their order distressed him. But, on the whole, the life of Ivan Ilyich ran its course as, according to his conviction, life ought to do, easily, agreeably, and decorously. He got up at nine, drank his coffee, read the paper, newspaper, then put on his official uniform and went to the court. There the routine of the daily work was ready mapped out for him, and he stepped into it at once. People with petitions, inquiries into the office, the office itself, the sittings, public and preliminary. In all this, the great thing necessary was to exclude everything with the sap of life in it, which always disturbs the regular course of official business not to admit any sort of relations with people except the official relations. The motive of all intercourse had to be simply the official motive, and the intercourse itself to be only official. A man would come, for instance, anxious for certain information. Ivan Ilyich, not being the functionary on duty, would have nothing whatever to do with such a man. But if this man's relation to him as a member of the court is such as can be formulated on official stamped paper, Within the limits of such a relation, Ivan Ilyich would do everything, positively everything he could, and in doing so would observe the semblance of human-friendly relations, that is, the courtesies of social life. But where the official relation ended, there everything else stopped too. This art of keeping the official um, aspect of things apart from his real life, Ivan Ilyich possessed in the highest degree and through long practice and natural aptitude he had brought it to such a pitch of perfection that he even permitted himself at times, like a skilled specialist, as it were, in jest, to let the human and official relations mingle. He allowed himself this liberty just because he felt he had the power at any moment, if he wished it, to take up the purely official line again and to drop the human relation. This thing was not simply easy, agreeable, and decorous. In Ivan Ilyich's hands, it attained a positively artistic character. In the intervals of business, he smoked, drank tea, chatted a little about politics, a little about public affairs, a little about cards, but most of all about appointments in the service. And tired, 
but feeling like some artist who has skillfully played his part in the performance, one of the first violins in the orchestra, he returned home. At home, his daughter and her mother had been paying calls somewhere, or else someone had been calling on them. The son had been at school, had been preparing his lessons with his teachers, and duly learning correctly what was taught at the high school. Everything was as it should be. After dinner, if there were no visitors, Ivan Ilyich sometimes read some book of which people were talking, and in the evening sat down to work, that is, read official papers, compared them with the laws, sorted dispositions, and put them under the laws. This he found neither tiresome nor entertaining. It was tiresome when he might have been playing bridge, but if there were no bridge going on, it was anyway better than sitting alone or with his wife. Ivan Ilyich's pleasures were little dinners, to which he invited ladies and gentlemen of good social position, and such methods of passing the time with them as were usual with such persons, so that his drawing room might be all, like all other drawing rooms. Once they even gave a party, a dance, and Ivan Ilyich enjoyed it, and everything was very successful, except that it led to a violent quarrel with his wife over the tarts and sweetmeats. Praskovia Fedorovna had her own plan, while Ivan Ilyich insisted on getting everything from an expensive pastry cook, and ordered a great many tarts, and the quarrel was because these tarts were left over, and the pastry cook's bill came to forty-five roubles. The quarrel was a violent and unpleasant one, so much so that Praskovia Fedorovna called him fool, imbecile, and he clutched at his head, and in his anger made some allusions to a divorce but the party itself was enjoyable. There were all the best people, and Ivan Ilyich danced with Princess Trufonov, the sister of the one who, so well known in, in connection with the charitable association called Bear My Burden. His official pleasures lay in the gratification of his pride. His social pleasures lay in the gratification of his vanity. But Ivan Ilyich's most real pleasure was the pleasure of playing bridge. He had admitted to himself that after all, after whatever unpleasant incidences there had been in his life, the pleasure which burned like a candle before all others was sitting with good players and not noisy partners at bridge, and, of course, a forehand game. Playing with five was never a success, though one pretends to like it particularly, and with good cards to play a shrewd, serious game, then supper and a glass of wine. And after bridge, especially after winning some small stakes, winning large sums was unpleasant. Ivan Ilyich went to bed in a particularly happy frame of mind. So they lived. They moved in the very best circle and were visited by people of consequence and young people. In their views of their circle of acquaintances, the husband, the wife, and the daughter were in, were in complete accord, and without any expressed agreement on the subject, they all acted alike in dropping and shaking off various friends and relations, shabby persons who swooped down upon them in their uh, drawing room with Japanese plates on the walls and pressed their civilities on them. Soon these shabby persons ceased fluttering about them, and none but the very best society was seen at the Gullivans. Young men began to pay attention to Luzanka, and Petrushchev, the son of Dmitri Ivanovich Petrushchev, and the sole heir of his fortune, an examining magistrate, 
began to be so attentive to Lozanka that Ivan Ilyich had raised the question with his wife whether it would not be as well to arrange a sledge drive for them or to get up some theatricals. So they lived, and everything went on in this way without change, and everything was very nice. Chapter 4 All were in good health. Dun, dun, dun. One could not use the word ill health, in connection with the symptoms Ivan Ilyich sometimes complained of, namely a queer taste in his mouth and a sort of uncomfortable feeling on the left side of the stomach. But it came to pass that this uncomfortable feeling kept increasing, and became not exactly a pain, but a continual sense of weight in his side and irritable temper. This irritable temper, continually growing and growing, began at last to mar the agreeable easiness, and decorum that had reigned in the Golovin household. Quarrels between the husband and wife became more and more frequent, and soon all the easiness and am amenity of life had fallen away, and mere propriety was maintained with difficulty. Scenes became again more frequent. Again, there were only islands in the sea of contention, and but a few of these at which this husband and wife could meet without an outbreak. And Praskovia Fedorovna said now, not without grounds, that her husband had a trying temper. With her characteristic exaggeration, she said he had always had this awful temper, and she had needed all her sweetness to put up with it for twenty years. It was true that it was he now who began the quarrels. His gusts of temper always broke out just before dinner, and often just as he was beginning to eat at the soup. He would notice that some piece of the crockery had been chipped, or that the food was not nice, or that his son put his elbow on the table, or his daughter's hair was not arranged as he liked it. And whatever it was, he laid the blame of it on Praskovia Fedorovna. Praskovia Fedorovna had at first uh, retorted in the same strain, and said all sorts of horrid things to him. But on two occasions... Just at the beginning of dinner, he had flown into such a frenzy that she perceived that it was due to physical derangement, and was brought on by taking food, and she controlled herself. She did not reply, but simply made haste to get dinner over. Praskovia Fedorovna took great credit to herself for this exercise of self-control. Making up her mind that her husband had a fearful temper, and made her life miserable, she began to feel sorry for herself and the more she felt for herself, the more she hated her husband. She began to wish he were dead, yet could not wish it, because then there would be no income. And this exasperated her against him even more. She considered herself dreadfully unfortunate, precisely because even his death could not save her, and she felt irritable and concealed it, and this hidden irritation on her side increased his irritability. After one violent scene, in which Ivan Ilyich had been particularly unjust, and after which he had said in explanation that he certainly was irritable, but that it was due to illness, she said that if he were ill he ought to take steps, and insisted on his going to see a celebrated doctor. He went. Everything was as he had expected. Everything was as it always is. The waiting and the assumption of dignity, that professional dignity he knew so well, exactly as he assumed it himself in court. 
and the sounding and listening and questions that called for answers that were foregone conclusions and obviously superfluous, and the significant air that seemed to insinuate, you only leave it to all us, and we will arrange everything. For us it is certain and incontestable how to arrange everything. Everything in one way for every man of every sort. It was all, all exactly as in his court of justice. Exactly the same air as he put on in dealing with the man brought up for judgment, the doctor put on for him. The doctor said, This and that proves that you have such and such a thing wrong inside you. But if that is not confirmed by analysis of this and that, then we must assume this and that. If we assume this and that, then, and so on. To Ivan Ilyich there was only one question of consequence. Was his condition dangerous or not? But the doctor ignored that irrelevant inquiry. From the doctor's point of view, this was a side issue, not the subject under consideration. The only real question was the balance of probabilities between a loose kidney, chronic catarrh, and appendicitis. It was not a question of the life of Ivan Ilyich, but the question between the loose kidney and the intestinal appendix. And this question, as it seemed to Ivan Ilyich, the doctor solved in a brilliant manner in favor of the appendix, with the reservation that analysis of the water might give a fresh clue, and that then the aspect of the case would be altered. All this was point for point in identical with what Ivan Ilyich had himself done in brilliant fashion a thousand times over in dealing with some man on his trial. Just as brilliantly, the doctor made his summing up, and triumphantly, gaily even, glanced over his spectacles at the prisoner in the dock. From the doctor's summing up, Ivan Ilyich deduced the conclusion that things looked bad, and that he, the doctor, and most likely everyone else, did not care, but that things looked bad for him. And this conclusion improved Ivan Ilyich morbidly, arousing in him a great feeling of pity for himself, a great anger against this doctor who would be unconcerned about a matter of such importance. But he said nothing of that. He got up, and laying the fee on the table, he said with a sigh, We sick people probably often ask inconvenient questions. Tell me, is this generally a dangerous disease, illness or not? The doctor glanced severely at him with one eye through his spectacles, as though to say, Prisoner at the bar, if you will not keep within the limits of the questions allowed you, I shall be compelled to take measures for your removal from the precincts of the court. I have told you that I thought what I thought necessary and suitable already, said the doctor. The analysis will show you anything further. And the doctor bowed him out. Ivan Ilyich went out slowly and dejectedly, got into his sledge, and drove home. All the way home, he was incessantly going over all that doctor had said, trying to translate all these complicated, obscure, scientific phrases into simple language, and to read in them an answer to the question, It's bad. Is it very bad, or nothing much as yet? And it seemed to him that the upshot of all the doctor had said was that it was very bad. Everything seemed dismal to Ivan Ilyich in the streets. The sledge drivers were dismal, the houses were dismal, the people passing and the shops were dismal. This ache, this dull, gnawing ache that never ceased for a second, seemed, when connected with the doctor's obscure utterances, to have gained a new, more serious significance. With a new sense of misery, Ivan Ilyich kept watch on it now. 
he reached home and began to tell his wife about it. His wife listened, but in the middle of his account his daughter came in with her hat on, ready to go out with her mother. Reluctantly, she half sat down to listen to these tedious details, but she could not stand it for long, and her mother did not hear his story to the end. "'Well, I'm very glad,' said his wife. "'Now you must be sure and take the medicines regularly. Give me the prescription. I'll send Garrison to the chemist's.' And she went to get ready to go out. He had not taken breath while she was in the room, and he heaved a deep sigh when she was gone. "'Well,' he said, Maybe it really is nothing, as yet. He began to take the medicine to carry out the doctor's directions, which were changed after the analysis of the water. But it was just at this point that some confusion arose, either in the analysis or in what ought to have followed from it. The doctor himself, of course, could not be blamed for it, but it turned out that things had not gone as the doctor had told him. Either he had forgotten or told a lie, or was hiding something from him. But Ivan Ilyich still went on just as exactly car uh, just as exactly carrying out the doctor's direction, and in doing so he found comfort at last, at first. From the time of his visit to the doctor, Ivan Ilyich's principal occupation became the exact observation of the doctor's prescriptions as regards hygiene and medicine and the careful observation of his ailment, in all the functions of his organism. Ivan Ilyich's principal interest came to be people's ailments and people's health. When anything was said in his presence about sick people, about deaths and recoveries, especially in this case of an illness resembling his own, he listened, trying to conceal his excitement, asked questions, and applied what he heard to his own trouble. The ache did not grow less, but Ivan Ilyich made great efforts to force himself to believe that he was better, and he succeeded in deceiving himself so long as nothing happened to disturb him. But as soon as he had a mischance, some unpleasant words with his wife, a failure in his official work, an unlucky hand at bridge, he was at once acutely sensible of his illness. In former days he had borne with such mishaps, hoping soon to retrieve the mistake, to make a struggle, to reach success later, to have a lucky hand but now he was cast down by every mischance and reduced to despair. He would say to himself, Here I'm only just beginning to get better, and the medicine has begun to take effect, and now this mischance or disappointment. And he was furious against the mischance or the people who were causing him in the disappointment and killing him, and he felt that this fury was killing him, but could not check it. One would have thought that it should have been clear to him that this exasperation against circumstances and people was aggravating his disease, and that therefore he ought not to pay attention to the unpleasant incidents. But his reasoning took quite the opposite direction. He said that he needed peace, and was on the watch for everything that disturbed his peace, and at the slightest disturbance of it he flew into a rage. What made his position worse was that he read medical books and consulted doctors. He got worse so gradually that he might have deceived himself. Comparing one day with another, the difference was so slight. But when he consulted the doctors, then it seemed to him that he was getting worse, and very rapidly so indeed. And in spite of this, he was continually consulting the doctors. That month he called on another celebrated doctor. 
The second celebrity said almost the same as the first, but put his questions differently. And the interview with this celebrity only redoubled the doubts and terrors of Ivan Ilyich. A friend of a friend of his, a very good doctor, diagnosed the disease quite differently. And in spite of the fact that he guaranteed recovery, by his questions and his suppositions, he confused Ivan Ilyich even more and strengthened his suspicions. A homeopath gave yet another diagnosis of the complaint and prescribed medicine, which Ivan Ilyich took secretly for a week. But after a week of the homeopathic medicine, he felt no relief. And losing faith both in the other doctor's treatment and in this, he fell into even deeper depression. One day, a lady of his acquaintance talked to him of the healing wrought, uh, wrought by icons. Ivan Ilyich caught himself listening attentively and believing in the reality of the facts alleged. This incident alarmed him. Can I have de uh, degenerated to such a point of intellectual feebleness, he said to himself. Nonsense. It's all rubbish. I must not give way to nervous fears, but fixing on one doctor adhere strictly to his treatment. That's what I will do. Now it's settled. I won't think about it, but till next summer I will stick to the treatment, and then I shall see. Now I'll put a stop to this wavering. It was easy to say this, but impossible to carry it out. The pain in his side was always dragging at him, seeming to grow more acute and ever more incessant. It seemed to him that the taste in his mouth was queerer, and there was a, lo a loathsome smell even from his breath and his appetite and strength kept dwindling. There was no deceiving himself. Something terrible, new, and so important that nothing more important had ever been in Ivan Ilyich's life was taking place in him, and he alone knew of it. All about him did not or would not understand, and believed that everything in the world was going on as before. This was what tortured Ivan Ilyich more than anything. Those of his own household, most of all his wife and daughter, were, who, were so, um, who were absorbed in a perfect whirl of visits, did not, he saw, comprehend it at all, and were annoyed that he was so depressed and exacting, as though he were to blame for it. Though they tried indeed to disguise it, he saw um, he was a nuisance to them, but that his wife had taken up a definite line of her own in regard to his illness, and stuck to it regardless of what he might say and do. This line was expressed thus. You know, she would say to acquaintances, Ivan Ilyich cannot, like all other simple-hearted folks, keep to the treatment prescribed him. One day he'll take his drops and eat what he's ordered, and go to bed in good time. The next day, if I don't see to it, he'll suddenly forget to take his medicine, eat sturgeon, which is forbidden by the doctors, yes, and sit up at bridge till past midnight. Why, when did I do that? Ivan Ilyich asked in vexation one day at Pyotr Ivanovich's. Why, yesterday with Shebek. It makes no difference. I couldn't sleep for pain. Well, it doesn't matter what you do uh, it for, only you'll never get well like this, and you must make us wretched. Praskovia Fedorovna's external attitude to her husband's illness, openly expressed to others and to himself, was that Ivan Ilyich was to blame in the matter of his illness, and that the whole illness was another injury he was doing to his wife. Ivan Ilyich felt that the expression of this dropped from her unconsciously, 
but that made it no easier for him. In his official life, too, Ivan Ilyich noticed, or fancied he noticed, a strange attitude to him. At one time it seemed to him that people were looking inquisitively at him, as a man who would shortly have to vacate his position. At another time his friends would suddenly begin chafing him in a friendly way over his nervous fears, as though that awful and horrible, unheard-of thing that was going on within him, incessantly gnawing at him, and irresistibly dragging him away somewhere, were the most agreeable subject for joking. Schwarz, especially with his jocoseness, his liveliness, and his calm tone, exasperated Ivan Ilyich by reminding him of himself ten years ago. Friends came sometimes to play cards. They sat down to the card table. They shuffled and dealt the new cards. Diamonds were led and followed by diamonds, the seven. His partner said, can't trump, and play the two of diamonds. What then? Why, delightful capital it should have been. He had a trump hand. And suddenly Ivan Ilyich feels that gnawing ache, that taste in his mouth, and it strikes him as something grotesque, that with that he could be glad of a trump hand. He looks at Mikhail Mikhailovich, his partner, how he taps on the table with his red hand, and affably and indulgently abstains from snacking, snatching up the trick, and pushes the cards toward Ivan Ilyich so as to give him the pleasure of taking them up, without any trouble, without even stretching out his hand. What, does he suppose that I'm so weak that I can't stretch out my hand, thinks Ivan Ilyich, and then forgets the trumps, and trumps his partner's cards, and plays his trump hand without making three tricks. And what's the most awful thing of all is that he sees how upset Mikhail Mikhailovich is about it, well, he doesn't care a bit, and it's awful for him to think why he doesn't care. They all see that he's in pain, and say to him, We can stop if you're tired. You go and lie down. Lie down? No. He's not in the least tired. They will play the rubber. All are gloomy and silent. Ivan Ilyich feels that it is he who has brought this gloom upon them, and he cannot disperse it. They have supper, and the party breaks up and Ivan Ilyich is left alone with the consciousness that his life is poisoned for him, and poisons the life of others, and that this poison is not losing its force, but is continually penetrating more and more deeply into his whole existence. And with the consciousness of this, and with the physical pain in addition, and the terror in addition to that, he must lie in his bed, often not able to sleep for pain the greater part of the night, and in the morning he must get up again, dress, go to the law court, speak, write, or if he does not go out, stay at home for all the four and twenty hours of the day and night, of which each is a torture. And he had to live thus on the edge of the precipice alone, without one man who would understand or feel for him.